You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Friends, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I would appeal to you this morning to give some little time as we open up the word to thinking about what Jesus is as the hope of the nations and what, what he meant when he said that he came to preach good news to the poor. I was uh, reading a book this past week that uh, identified the old English word, H-A-L, HAL, as the word that means holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and holy, H-O-L-Y, and even healthy as we use it today. So if you were to be in Middle, Age, in Middle Ages England and saw a lad running across the field, someone might have said, well, there goes a holy boy, meaning that he's a healthy boy. And it's interesting as it's, it's consistent with what I believe is the ministry of Jesus when we see him walk the earth. When we read the Gospels, when we get in touch with who Jesus is, the one that we claim to be followers of, we realize that He didn't delineate between physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual and all these things that we compartmentalize, but rather he had more of a holistic uh, kind of ministry. We think of our own church, and we, we believe our purpose, as we've identified it, is to nurture followers of Jesus Christ through healthy relationship. And we could even maybe think about the old English word healthy, meaning holy, complete, relationship. And, uh, and indeed, that's what God calls us to. Today, we use words nowadays like integral mission to describe that kind of approach to the whole person as we read Jesus's uh, ministry in the Gospels and so on. And that kind of integral mission or holistic approach is, is nowhere better seen than in the inaugural sermon that Jesus preached in beginning his public ministry. We read about it, it was read by Sig earlier in the, in the ser- service, by, uh, we read about it in Luke chapter 4, that Jesus on the day that he had returned to his hometown of Nazareth, after having been baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, after having been taken by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one, after 40 days of fasting, he comes back into his hometown And he goes to the synagogue, which was his practice during his entire life. And so he's there. And and I can imagine Mary sitting in the front row, excited that her rabbi, traveling, preaching, itinerant guy, son, is is back in, in Nazareth. And maybe Joseph was at the back pacing, wondering how things would go. And, and there's Jesus, and he's, he's honored by the elders of the synagogue, and they hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. They let him read the scripture from the prophets that day. And he opens up the, uh, pro, the scroll of Isaiah to a passage in Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And it goes on and on about the Isaiah 61 passage in Luke chapter 4. We read about that. When he's done reading the passage, he closes up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And it says in the scriptures that all of the eyes of the synagogue were fastened upon him. (laughs) 
You see, because the next thing in the order of service was that the guy that read was supposed to comment on the passage of Scripture that was just read. And so Jesus proceeded to comment. But the message that he gave was not the message that they were expecting from him. In fact, the message that he gave must have been so very offensive to them for we read that they picked up, they, they, they took him to the edge of a cliff and they wanted to, they wanted to kill him. I mean, it, the, day, the day started with the hometown boy back and, and everybody excited. The day ended with almost a lynch mob murder. What happened here? That's our goal today. We want to try and understand what happened in this scripture. Uh, Jesus begins by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This was a claim to be the Messiah of Isaiah 61, which was no small claim. And the, the crowd is, is clearly confused. I mean, isn't this Joseph's lad? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the guy that, you know, was traveling around preaching, but now is back? And so they're upset. They're, they're confused. But mostly what gets them upset is this couple of stories that he shares from the Old Testament. And they're both about God passing by his people, Israel, and instead giving some preference to Gentile peoples. One, a widow of Zarephath, and the other, a commander of the Syrian army, Naaman, and healed of leprosy. And so these two stories have something within them that confronts their idea of God, their idea of what's right, their idea of who they are and who God is, and it is so, so very offensive, they're furious and they want to kill Jesus. I want to say that this passage, Luke 4, is a paradigm passage. What I mean by that is that this is a passage that encapsulates, it defines the ministry of Jesus. There are very few in the scriptures that are like this. There are very few passages of scripture that kind of have it all together. One of the other ones is found in Matthew chapter 11 when John the Baptist is in prison. And he sends some of his disciples to go and ask Jesus, Are you the one? Or should we be waiting for someone else? And the response that John the Baptist sends to Jesus, or Jesus sends to John the Baptist, is this. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me, he said. Wow, this is another paradigm passage. It's got it all. It, it encapsulates the mission of the Messiah and what he came to be and do. And I think it encapsulates what we're meant to be all about as well. Do you know that there's a book by the name of Unexpected News, Reading the Bible with Third World Eyes. The author, Robert McAfee Brown, says this about this passage. He says that there is no passage more consistently referred to by third world Christians than this one. Wow. No passage more consistently referred to by third world Christians than Luke chapter 4. I want to understand why. <laughs> Don't you? Let's, let's make that our goal 
at least to some degree this morning. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his public ministry. He is kicking off the day by going to his hometown and he is preaching in his home synagogue. What a wonderful opportunity. He not only chooses Isaiah 61, he announces through that text that, that this is what the messianic ministry is all about, that he is the fulfillment of the messianic ministry because he is the Messiah, and that anyone who are followers of the Messiah should also be about this. He is about his father's business. Someone who's a follower of the son should also be about the father's business, and this was what he came to preach. Now, lest we get complicated here, lest we over-spiritualize the text, lest we miss the intended meaning of Luke and of Jesus, of course, when he first preached it, let's look at the most common sense interpretation that we can of this passage. If we do, I think we're going to see Jesus announcing simply one thing. If we do, I believe that Jesus is actually just saying one simple truth that could be summed up with one word, and it's the word reversal. That's the word, reversal. Jesus' kingdom inaugurated is all about a grand reversal. And so, God's Spirit upon Jesus anointed Him to do the reversals of society. The ones with no hope are going to have hope. The ones who mourn will rejoice. The sad will be glad. Brown in his book says this, the poor whose lives have been one succession after another of bad news are going to receive good news. The captives whose lives have consisted of being bound will be released. The blind who have been denied sight are going to see. And the oppressed whose lives have been nothing but enslavement will be freed. Everything is reversed. Everything is reversed. That's the plain meaning of the text, isn't it? And it does not surprise me that the poor and those who look at this scripture from third world eyes see it more clearly than we who are rich by global standards and have little experience to speak of. Little experience to speak of, of being poor or enslaved or held captive or oppressed. You see, that the reality of our Bible reading is that we will all read the Bible from the social context of where we live. So it does not surprise me that North American eyes reading a scripture like this look at it differently and maybe even fall into the trap of over-spiritualizing the scriptures. Understanding poor in spirit thinking of freedom for prisoners in terms of inner bondage of sin, associating blindness with spiritual sight. We might even think of oppression as anything from a low self-image to being told that we'll never amount to anything. Is that really what Jesus' ministry is all about? Is Jesus really only about the inner and the spiritual? Does He not want something more than that? Two weeks ago, we spoke about justice as we were going through Isaiah passages, and we studied the Hebrew word for justice used in the Old Testament more than 200 times, meaning a rightness that's rooted in God's character. Rene Padilla said that the practice of justice is center, 
central for God's purpose for human life. We quoted Micah chapter 6 verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? But to, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's simple. That's what the Lord requires of us. And I said then that justice, in simple terms, is, is a leveling off of the playing field. There are a host of reasons in today's world why not everyone gets a fair shake. Not everyone gets dealt the same hand. Not everyone plays on a level playing field. Everything from economic, political, social, and physical reasons. And so justice is is lacking. And because justice is lacking, God gave us this incredible thing called mercy. Because you see, mercy, when it is given to the right people, is meant to raise them up so that they are more on a level playing field. That's simple, isn't it? Mercy. So justice and a just society is the norm to be pursued, but we know That until the Lord Jesus returns to this earth and sets everything right, we cannot hope for in this world and in this age a really just society. And so we expend the mercy of God that we have received so that it can be more just than it ever was before. In the Old Testament, we talked about it two weeks ago as well, that that there are special care to be given to four groups of people. There are four groups of people that God says, you care for these people. They are the widows and the orphans and the immigrants and the poor. And if you'll study the Old Testament, you'll see that that anywhere that neglect is shown to the needs of these people, it is not merely called a lack of mercy or a lack of charity. It is called a lack of justice, mishpat. That's what God designed. God shows and defends those with the least economic and social power, so we also should. The words for poor in the Hebrew Old Testament also are very descriptive. They simply mean the weak ones, the frail ones, the bent over ones, the humiliated ones. And God says justice raises them up. Justice gives them integrity. Justice treats them with respect. It's the grand reversal, friends. That's what it's all about. Now let's go back to Luke chapter 4. And let's take a look at why this group of people in the synagogue on Jesus' homecoming reacted the way they did. You see, you can learn a lot about someone by what makes them angry. And if you, you look at what makes them angry, then the next step is to say, why did that make them angry? And then you can learn a lot about someone. And so this group of people in the synagogue that day are reacting to the idea of God and how God behaves with his people in this world. And, and, and they're, they're offended by what Jesus presents because Jesus presents his people uh, and he sees God bypassing his people the way that Jesus presented the scriptures and offering divine grace to the Gentiles. Elijah the prophet is sent to a widow in a Gentile land for food during a famine. And Elisha, the prophet, is is, uh, bypassing all kinds of people in in, uh, Israel with leprosy. And he goes instead to Naaman the Syrian to heal him. And this, this is offensive to the group of people in the synagogue. 
And so they reacted furiously and they were ready to kill Jesus. It should be no surprise to us who might be threatened by the reversal of the kingdom of Christ. It should not surprise us who is threatened by the reversal and who might be delighted in it. Those who like the way things are on planet earth and are the beneficiaries of economic advantage and political structure and religious establishment and systems of justice, they will be perturbed at the thought of any reversals taking place because it will mean a loss of privilege and a sharing of the pie with a much larger circle than they care to. And those that will get excited about the kingdom reversals will be those who have felt like they have been victims of economic disadvantage, political structure, religious establishments, and systems of justice. The bottom line question is not hard to understand. Who stands to gain in this reversal and who stands to lose? That's the issue. Simple. You know, without realizing it, you might take a look at it and say, I kind of interpret life that way too. I evaluate my circumstances that way too. What do I stand to gain or lose in something that's being reversed? How's my response to public policy or law or justice? One of the greatest victories of ending violence and injustice against the poor that ever took place, I think, in modern history, what took place about 150 years ago in England when almost single-handedly, William Wilberforce confronted the slave trade. In fact, when I read his his biography, I I realized this past summer I read his biography that, that he actually did his own research. He did his own investigation. He took his own trip to Africa and to the West Indies. And as a parliamentarian, he he made it his business out of his own Christian conviction and out of his own conscience of, of mind to go and see for himself what's going on so that he could bring it back because there were so many false reports circulating in England about how good it was, this slave trade, how wonderful it was for the Africans that were getting getting out of that terrible place and getting new places to live and, and jobs and so on. It's stupid. Things that were believed. And in the midst of it all, after his own investigation, he concluded that that it had ravaged, the slave trade had ravaged and ruined the African economy and that a debt was owed to the African continent as well as to the slaves themselves. He also came to see that everyone along the whole line that had been touched by the slave trade had blood on their hands, were guilty. Right beginning from the African chiefs who would kidnap and hand their own people over on death marches out to the coast where the ships were waiting. The slave traders who would herd them like cattle in defenses. The slave ship captains who would then get them on the ship in deplorable conditions lying down for months only able to get up to excrete. And the plantation owners in the West Indies who worked them and abused and used them until many died. And the consumers and the sellers and the buyers on the England shores of the sugar that was being made. And even the Church of England who had great investments in West Indies. 
in the sugar plantations. You see, he did his own investigation. He came to see that there was, a, there was an unlevel playing field. And as a parliamentarian, he decided he got to do something about this. Some of you know far more than I do about the global situations, about the kinds of inequities that exist on planet Earth. I think if we're going to really take Luke 4 and understand what Jesus was meaning when he spoke and why the crowd reacted, we, we finally have to look at verse 19. The last thing that Jesus quotes before he sits down. He says in verse 19, Luke 4, to proclaim, he said, the year of the Lord's favor. Perhaps he explained it even more. Perhaps Luke is only giving us a summary. But almost everyone agrees that this is a reference to the year of Jubilee. If you were to study the year of Jubilee in Leviticus chapter 25, you'll see that the law of Moses guaranteed this and asked for this. The law of Moses said that you as an individual need to rest your body once every seven days. And that you as a farmer need to rest a field once every seven years. And that if you take a group of seven sevens and add them up, that that a year of Jubilee, the 50th year, has to be this grand Sabbath rest of everything. What did that mean? Well, it meant from a book by the name of The Politics of Jesus, John Howard Yoder says this, it meant four things. It meant, first of all, the soil was to lie fallow. Number two, that debts were to be canceled. Number three, that slaves were to be set free. And four, that all capital was to be redistributed, which meant fields that were owned 50 years ago by someone else are now returned to the original owner. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, it says, God says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. And then he goes on in verses 25 to 28 to specifically mention the poor. And he says that on the year of Jubilee, there, the, that the poor would be reinstated and all that they owned would be returned to them. You see, what what God is ensuring in the year of Jubilee among His people that obeyed His law, He was ensuring that this radical social change would be reset every 50 years. That enormous reversals of accumulated inequities would be reset. That the ground would be re-leveled. There'd be a resetting of social relationship. And the people of God would have a, a level playing field once again where it had become unlevel. Incredible. Incredible. The thing thing that we, we don't know very much of is how faithfully Israel practiced the year of Jubilee. And you can know why. Whose decision would it be if the year of Jubilee is going to be practiced? Not the slaves. Not the ones in debt, but the ones in leadership. They're going to decide how to interpret the law of Moses, how to celebrate the year of Jubilee, and whether it meant paying off priests or, or rabbis or whatever it took. 
can be certain that just as today we have a tendency to sometimes over-spiritualize certain passages of Scripture, there was a similar tendency in the time of Isaiah when he was preaching. But it's incredible because you can imagine how much it would mean for all debts to be canceled, all slaves to be set free, all land to be returned. God had built into the society of his people a reset button that would combat social ills and injustices because of greed and sin and indifference. But you can see that the response that God received from these kinds of initiatives was the same kind of response that Jesus received when, when he was suggesting that there was someone else outside of God's scope that needs to be blessed. Mercy to others doesn't receive well if it means it's at my expense. I wonder how favorable are we to the message of hope that Jesus brings to the world if it's going to cost us something. Are we, are we honest enough to admit that as beneficiaries of socioeconomic systems and politics that, that we resist losing benefits or, or, or sharing benefits with the poor? Do we educate ourselves enough to understand some of the global issues that make people poor? I must say to my shame that I don't know enough about this. Some of you might have seen the link that I sent out on our Thursday email through the church. It was called Good News to the Poor. And I had shared with you the Millennium Development Goals that were set by the United Nations in the year 2000. There was eight of them. I, I sent some links that you could study those. And um, the, they address everything from health to education to injustice and so on. And... and they decided in 2000 that, that the year 2015 would be the year that they would reevaluate. And so here we are on the eve of this incredible year when the United Nations is going to gather and they're going to look at how are we doing at exterminating poverty on planet Earth. And, and there was another link that I sent called The Locust Effect, which is a book written by Gary Haugen of the International Justice Mission. And uh, that book... Uh, and the research done behind it identified that, that the issues of poverty on planet Earth today are largely being not addressed when it comes to justice. Mercy is being addressed, but not justice. And so the, the author in their, in their reports and their research concluded that most poor people do not live under the shelter of the law, but far from the law's protection. That when we think of global poverty, we think of hunger, disease, homelessness, illiteracy, and dirty water, but seldom about sexual violence, forced labor, illegal detention, land theft, assault, police abuse, and oppression. The authors of the book say this, that you can provide all manner of good and services, goods and services to the poor as good people have been doing for decades and as we need to keep on doing. But if you are not restraining the bullies in the community from violence and theft, that critical assistance might easily go stolen. As one said this way, if you're not safe, nothing else matters. And in the Thursday email, I added these words. I said, we believe that Jesus Christ came and preached good news to the poor. As his followers, we want to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know it will not come fully and rightfully until his return when he sets everything right. But 
In the meantime, we seek a just society. We seek it through mercy. And from the hearts of all people, even the least of these, to the places of power and influence over nation, we are those who follow in Christ's stead. And we say, Christ must be praised through justice and mercy. And so, in concluding, I want to share with you some of the things that maybe looking at this scripture in Luke 4 from Isaiah 61 might lead us to to do and to be as a result. Number one, as I reflect on Luke chapter 4, it motivates me to become more aware of what's going on in the world. We, We cannot afford to be ignorant. And we spend so much time in other pursuits. God says, become aware of what's going on in global situations. Number two, Reading and studying this passage, it helps my heart to align with whom God loves and what God hates. And, and, and studying a passage like this helps me with that. Number three, it makes me thankful for where I live. It makes me thankful for living in Canada and for being in Winnipeg. It makes me thankful to have a police services that is just To have a chief of police that that acknowledges God through Jesus Christ is a man of prayer and believes that prayer was part of the influence that resulted in 14% decrease in crime in in the city of Winnipeg last year. It makes me grateful that he has got a strategy of prevention about crime in Winnipeg. And that there are chaplains and peoples that are pursuing righteousness in this way. It should make us to double our efforts to pray for our police. And I would remind you this day that again, like we did last year, we are part of dozens of churches in Winnipeg that have taken a week and said, we're going to bathe the police in prayer that week. Our week is the last week of January in one month. January 25 to 31, we're going to be praying that God will just protect and abundantly bless the programs and the peoples of the Winnipeg Police Services. Studying a passage like this makes me realize as well that that we can be grateful for organizations like the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada who have hired lawyers and advocates who go to Ottawa who stand before parliament and to who present issues on bills that are important and laws that are being passed and we as a church pay our money annually to EFC because we're a member of them and we want them to represent us and the evangelical concerns that are needed in Canada it makes me glad to know a person like Joyce Smith an MP from Kildonan that is 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 an MP but on her heart really is all about human trafficking and the and the deplorable situations And I was really, really glad to read her email a little while ago about Bill C-36, the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act. Crazy. Crazy. For the first time in Canada, it's illegal to be a pimp or to buy sex for the first time. And there are peoples that are opposing this law even now. 
We need to pray for people like Joyce Smith or pray for these groups that are, are advocating justice, mercy, and the things that are right. As I read the scripture and study it as well, I recognize that I'm very encouraged by the direction I see our church going. That, that we are on a direction of having a conscience in society, having a heart for the nations, for the poor. Just the response of uh, over $6,500 that have come in so far to the Christmas card campaign. All of those projects lined up to address issues of the poor. I'm grateful to God for that. And then finally, I think studying a passage like this reminds me of how much Christ, He lived what He preached. Sounds so silly to say that about Jesus, doesn't it? But He lived what He preached. I mean, He was born in a stable. He grew up as a poor boy in a carpenter shop. He said when He was an adult that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. And the scriptures teach us that we are to be his followers. And I'll begin, I'll end with the same scripture I began with from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, at the right hand of the Father, he was in heaven, he was enjoying the eternal glory that is reserved for only the Son of God. And, and yet for your sakes, he became poor. He came down to earth took upon himself this human body, confined to a stable, lived out his life so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ.